2 Timothy chapter 2. A good soldier of Jesus Christ. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. This is the word of the Lord, and we thank God for it. Why don't I uh, lead you in prayer as we ask for God's help in understanding it? Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father in heaven, uh, we thank you that you speak to us today through the, the preaching of your word. Lord, uh, as we study the Bible, we pray that you would give us um, ears that would hear what you have to say, and that you would give us understanding as we study the scriptures together. Lord, we pray that you would uh, challenge those who need to be challenged, and that you would comfort those who need to be comforted. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was a, a cold, foggy day. Uh, it was about three kilometers off the coast of uh, Southern California, Los Angeles, and this 34-year-old woman named Florence Chadwick had been swimming for 15 hours straight, and uh, she was trying to reach this place called Catalina Island. She was exhausted, physically and mentally exhausted, uh, by the swim, and just uh, one kilometer out from the end, uh, she pulled out. She gave up. She said, I can't do this anymore. The water was too cold. Her body was too tired. Her mind wasn't strong enough. And she buckled under the pressure. There are these moments in life where our circumstances, they feel too hard to handle. Some of you know this all too well. You've been through these circumstances where you feel like the pressures of life have just overwhelmed you. There are people in our church who are going through circumstances right now that are just too difficult to handle. They feel like uh, that they can't handle it. And there are some here who haven't yet experienced a real suffering in life, real difficult circumstances. And maybe this text tonight might prepare you uh, for some of the trouble that might come your way in the future. Now, the Apostle Paul writes this letter to Timothy to prepare him for the trouble that was coming his way. In this chapter, he encourages, he challenges Timothy, he calls on Timothy, he encourages Timothy to, as we just read, to be that soldier that keeps fighting, to be that athlete that keeps swimming, to be that 
farmer who keeps plowing, and a couple weeks ago, Dewan uh, spoke on that section of the passage. Tonight, our study takes us uh, to the end of chapter 2. Paul hopes and prays that Timothy, who is like a son to him, will persist under pressure. That's the main idea of this passage here tonight. This message has uh, particular relevance for each one of us. I mean, like I said, some of us, we live in a pressure cooker. Um, Life is difficult. We have jobs that are tiring. We have responsibilities that are demanding. We have, uh, some of us have health that is failing. Some have marriages that are struggling. Some have finances that are diminishing. And then in addition to all of these ordinary problems that we face in life, we have the added pressure of living the Christian life in a world that, that seems to be getting more and more and more hostile to the Christian faith. And so what happens to us as we endure life in the pressure cooker? Well, either Christians uh, buckle under the pressure or we persist. And all of us at one point or another have done both. We've buckled and we've persisted. Now, can you imagine for a minute how difficult it would have been for the Apostle Paul to persist under pressure? First of all, he writes this from prison. And not just like this cushy prison either. I was watching this news report a few days ago about these Norwegian prisons and they have like TVs in there in their cells. Um, the one prisoner had a lock, a key to his own, you know, cell, uh, video games. Uh, in the common room, they have uh, a lounge with a dartboard. Paul is not in a Norwegian prison. He writes from this dark, dank, uh, derelict dungeon, this Roman prison. This is not the first time he's been in prison either, but it's likely the worst prison that he's ever been in. It would have been much worse than his time in house arrest. And what history tells us that Roman prisons were not humane. They were filthy places. They were crowded. They, you know, to put it politely, they reeked of human waste. Uh, People were periodically flogged in Roman prisons, and then their wounds were not treated, and so there was infection. Paul's crime was preaching, and he, in faithful Preaching had rubbed people the wrong way, and he ended up in this dirty, dirty prison. But the threat of death didn't stop him, and the threat of prison didn't stop him. And we see here in this passage that he persisted under pressure. Paul lived a hard life. We know that from 2 Corinthians chapter 11. You can even turn there if you'd like, and you can actually see a list of really difficult things that Paul went through over the course of his life. We saw in 2 Corinthians 11 that he had health problems. He had been flogged. He had been stoned. His body was likely covered in scars because of all the floggings and beatings that he endured. He had enemies, many enemies, Roman enemies, Jewish enemies. He had Christian Christian enemies even, uh, people who uh, who were part of the church but opposed his ministry. He had been shipwrecked three times. He had spent a night in open water. So he's had a rough life, but um, he's persisted, and he keeps persisting because he knows that the message of salvation that, that he preaches is far more important than the sufferings that he has endured. 
And then, in addition to all that, he writes to his protege, his friend, his mentor, his uh, child, Timothy. And he, he knows that Timothy's life is not going to be a walk in the park either. It's the year 64 AD. Christians are, in that year, they're being rounded up by the emperor Nero. And Nero was a psychotic emperor. He used to uh, throw Christians uh, to the lions and to wild animals in the Colosseum. He used to um, uh, burn them at the stake and light his garden uh, with Christians. He was a terrible, terrible man. Timothy's uh, mentor, Paul, who is in prison, and he's facing the death penalty. And so Timothy would have been worried about the state of the church and what's going to happen next when this apostle Paul dies. People in the church, um, people who are claiming that they are Christians, are also working against Timothy. Timothy had a lot of enemies. And then on top of it all, uh, people are leaving the church left, right, and center because persecution was picking up. And as persecution began to increase, people slowly began to leave the church. They didn't want to face death or imprisonment. And Paul in his message here, what's he saying here in chapter 2? He's saying, hang in there. Hold on. Um, And he uses these three examples. You saw the three examples here in chapter 2. He uses the example of what? A soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. And Duan talked about the soldier a few weeks ago. Soldiers don't stop. They keep soldiering on. They endure sub-zero temperatures. They sleep in foxholes. They, they get pelted by bullets. They often go without food. In, in the worst circumstances, they eat moldy food. And they fight. Look at verse 4. Why do soldiers fight? Verse 4 says they fight because they want to please their commanding officer. Soldiers fight because they know that there's going to be a reward in the end. Soldiers, why do our soldiers fight? Why did our grandparents fight in World War II? Because they fought for our freedoms. They knew that there would be a reward in the end. And he uses another example here in verse 6. Look at verse 6. He uses the example of a farmer. Farmers out in the field working every day. It's raining. It's stinking hot. It's freezing cold. Uh, And he's out there working and laboring and planting and plowing and harvesting. And he does it. Why? Because he knows that it's going to produce a crop. There's going to be something wonderful in the end. And so he uses the example of a a farmer. And he also uses the example of an athlete in verse 5. You know, you think of that guy or girl who's up in the morning at 4 every day doing laps in the pool. The guy who's at the gym training every day, who pushes their body to the limits. Why? Why do they do that? They do it so that they can win a prize. And so he uses all of these examples of people who are fighting and striving and persevering and persisting because there's a wonderful outcome in the end. And of course, the wonderful outcome here for Paul is salvation. Not just his salvation, but we read the salvation for, of others. That he's persisting because he wants others to hear the gospel message. That's why Paul's out on ships getting shipwrecked. Because he knows that in so doing, he will come across people who he can share his faith with. 
And so there are those three examples, and then there's another example I want to draw to your attention. The example of Christ. Think about Jesus. Think about the way that Jesus persisted under pressure. Imagine Jesus um, in the wilderness, and he's hungry, and he's fatigued, and he's thirsty, and he's physically weak, and in the wilderness, Satan appears to him and then tempts him, and Jesus resists that pressure to sin. And imagine Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Gethsemane, he persists, and, um, and he knows that the task that's ahead of him And overwhelmed by the task, he begins sweating blood. Think of Jesus under trial as he's being peppered with questions by Pilate and Herod. Imagine the pressure that he faced on the cross, the the crushing weight of sin as God's wrath and anger for our sin was poured out on Jesus Christ. That kind of pressure. And not once did Jesus ever give up. Not once did he ever throw in the, in the towel. Not once did he ever say, you know, this salvation business is not for me. Why, why don't you go save yourselves? And he persisted. Like a soldier, he fought Satan. Like an athlete, he ran until he breathed his last breath. Like a farmer, he finished his work and then he shared the spoils. He shared the fruit with us. Persistence. Paul fears that Timothy may not persist. Paul is calling Timothy to be like his Savior, Jesus Christ, to persist, to persevere, to endure to the end. And so he, he takes this ink. I don't know how much ink cost in those days, but he, he thought it worthwhile to spend his ink on this letter to tell Timothy, you need to persist as you live the Christian life. I hope you are persisting. I hope, Timothy, that you are not giving into the pressures that you face. I hope that you are holding on, and I hope that you are hanging in there. Even if uh, Roman guards are banging on your door in the middle of the night, even if uh, other pastors are being imprisoned, even if uh, the church only has four people on Sunday morning, I'm, I'm hoping, I'm praying, Timothy, that you're going to persist in the faith. And that means joining me. Look at verse 3. Join me in my suffering. Persist with me in my suffering. And we uh, struggle to persist, don't we, as Christians? I struggle to persist. You know, over the last few weeks, I've been trying to cut down my sugar levels. And I opened up the fridge last night, and there in front of me was this giant pavlova. And I thought, I'll just one bite. <laughs> and, uh, and then 10 seconds later, uh, the whole thing was gone. And I caved, and uh, we cave, don't we? We ga- cave to temptation. And the pressure at work is building, and it's building, and it's boiling over. And then you get home, and the kids, well, they haven't done their chores, and you're already cranky, and you've been driving in, you know, two hours of rush hour traffic, and the house is a mess, and you're under all this pressure, and you know in your mind that verse that says, love your neighbor as yourself. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. You know that, but you lash out because you've boiled over, because you've caved. You didn't have to use your tongue as a weapon, but you chose to. And then afterwards, you excuse yourself. We excuse ourselves. 
Oh, I was under so much pressure. I was so tired. The traffic was so bad. Oh, and, and sometimes we cave on our convictions and then we justify it because we say the pressure was just too great. There's this pressure to conform to society. You know, we want to be liked. We want people to accept us. We want to be seen as normal. We want to be mainstream. We don't want to be seen as archaic. We don't want to be seen as stuck in our ways. And so we tweak our theology. We compromise on important issues. Or we compromise in the way that we live. Everyone else is doing it. Even Christians are doing it. So why aren't we, why, why, why aren't we conforming to our culture if everyone else is conforming? And so we cave under pressure. And we cave for all kinds of reasons. We cave when we are tired. We cave when we are stressed. We cave when we are bored. We cave when there's punishment involved. We cave when people hound us to conform. We cave when we fear consequence. We cave when we are provoked. We cave when money is involved. We cave when we are afraid. And then once we cave, we justify it. Oh, the pressure was just too great. Now, can you imagine the way that the Apostle Peter felt after he caved? We all know the Apostle Peter. Peter, a close friend of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus. And we see the, the story of Peter written in John 18. You know, it's the middle of the night. Jesus has been arrested. He had been taken to a house where he would be questioned, and Peter is sitting outside the front door waiting for Jesus, and a girl comes to him, and she looks at him in the dim light, and she says, wait a second, aren't you Peter? Aren't you that, that, that disciple that, that was with Jesus? And what did Peter say? Nope, you've got the wrong person. And then a second time, he was asked again, do you know this man? And G Peter said, no, I don't know him. And then a third time he was asked, do you know this man? And then Peter said, no, I don't. And, and just what I'm trying to show you is how the, even the most loyal follower of Jesus Christ caved under pressure. And so we have to see ourselves as Christians, like Peter in a way, because we have these moments in life, these Peter moments, where we cave under pressure. We had this um, chapel in Orlando when we lived there, um, where I study, and the chapel had this uh, massive uh, steeple. And there was a second steeple on the other side of campus. And on the first steeple stood a brass rooster. And on the second steeple uh, stood a cross. And that design was on purpose. And the reason for that design was so that as you walk up to, uh, to chapel, you look up at the steeple and you see the rooster. And what are you reminded of? You're reminded of Peter. You're reminded that you're like Peter. That we're so quick to deny our Savior. But then immediately after, you look from that steeple to the other steeple and there's a cross. And what do you remember? You remember that there's mercy and grace for those who have caved under pressure. For those who are repentant and come back to Christ and see their need for Him. And so it was, I loved walking to chapel because I was reminded of those two things. I was reminded of my sinfulness, but also God's graciousness and his mercy to sinners like me. And that's what chapter two teaches, isn't it? 
Look at verse 13. Those words, beautiful words. If we are faithless, He remains faithful. For He cannot deny Himself, even in our, in our failure. He cannot deny Himself. He welcomes us back just as He welcomed Peter back. He was faithful to Peter, wasn't He? Sure, Peter denied Christ, but that's not the end of the story. We know later on at the end of John's Gospel that Jesus came to Peter. Peter had gone back to his old fishing job. He thought it was the end of his, his ministry as an apostle of Jesus. Jesus said to Peter, I will build the, you are this rock, I will build the church on you. And Peter thought, well, my failure completely disqualified me. And so Jesus finds Peter fishing, and Jesus says to Peter three times, Do you love me? Peter says, You know that I love you. Jesus says, Feed my sheep and come follow me. Peter is a relatable person. He loves Jesus with all his heart. He's repentant. He has true faith. But there was this moment when he caved under pressure. And we can relate to, to Peter. I'm sure if you think long enough and hard enough, you can relate to Peter. And you can think of a moment in your life where you caved under pressure. But I'm comforted by those words in Psalm 46, which says that God is an ever-present help in times of trouble. And we know that God helps us when we are under pressure. You know, we know that God helped Paul when he was under pressure, even in that that dark, dingy prison waiting to die, we knew that God was present with him in his darkest moment, helping him in his weakness. We know that God was with Timothy as Timothy pastored churches in an empire that was persecuting and killing Christians and throwing them to lions. And we know that God is an ever-present help for us in the worst moments of our lives, in times when uh, we face pressure, and we do face pressures every single day we face pressures. So the big question here is how does God help us when we are trying to persist under this pressure? And I think there are three things, three answers here. And this passage offers us those answers. Verse 1 offers us the first answer. Look at verse 1. His grace strengthens us. His grace strengthens us. Now the other day, Surprise, surprise, I was at the bench press for my visit, yearly, vi yearly gym visit. I've been going a little bit more than that now. And uh, you always have, should have someone spotting you on the bench press. Uh, I made that mistake the first time I got hurt. And so, and so uh, I got someone to help me the second time, and I'm pushing the weight up. And I think, wow, I'm doing pretty good at this. And all of a sudden, I realized, no, wait a second, the person's spotting me. He's lifting the weight for me. And so he's helping me do the work, and, you know, it, I was, I'm exaggerating, exaggerating a bit here, but my arms were flapping, and he's doing a lot of the lifting, and, um, and we need to remember, why am I telling you that? We need to remember that our strength does not come from ourselves. God strengthens us in our weakness. He helps us withstand the pressures that we face in life. Remember what Paul said in Philippians 4, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Now, by all things, he's not talking about the bench press. 
And he's not talking about finishing a, a triathlon. You know, this is the verse that always gets misinterpreted. Uh, he's not talking about the strength it takes to get your essay done by its deadline. He's talking about the strength that it takes to persist as a Christian, to run the, Christian li- run the race well, to live the Christian life well. He's talking about the guy who doesn't know if he can forgive his enemy because he doesn't have the strength to do it. He's talking about Timothy, who feels that he doesn't have the strength to preach because he's so afraid of imprisonment. He's talking about that addiction, the guy or the girl who feels that they just don't have the strength to stop. He's talking about marriage and the couple who feels that they don't have the strength to persist in their marriage vows. And in verse 1 here, Paul gives Timothy this encouragement. Timothy, my son, God will give you the strength to persevere. You cannot do it in your own strength. That's what verse 1 says here, isn't it? My child, be strengthened by God's grace, the grace that you have in Jesus Christ. And so we see this, we have this reminder that God's grace gives us, helps us, gives us the strength to persevere. It empowers us. God's grace strengthens us. There's a second thing we learn from this passage. His word strengthens us, and his word persists as well. You know, in the world today, there are, um, there are 13 countries where the Bible is illegal, and there are 52 countries where it's restricted in North Korea, you can, just, you can get executed just simply for owning or possessing a Bible. And yet, in these places of persecution, the Christian faith is growing like a wildfire, quicker than it is here in Australia. In North Korea, the church has grown by 6% every year. And it just goes to show that what Paul is saying here is true. He says uh, in verse 9, Verse 8 and 9, that the Word of God is not bound. That God actually uses His Word to accomplish His purposes. Like so many North Koreans, Paul was in prison for his faith. And the church at that time were concerned because their, their pastors and their leaders, the people who were to lead them in the Christian faith, they were being rounded up like dogs and either burnt thrown to wild animals, or thrown in prison. And and the question would have been, if all of these pastors and all of these Christians are getting rounded up and killed, will the church be exterminated? What will happen to this church? I mean, obviously we know that God has preserved His church for the last 2,000 years, but they didn't know that. They, They didn't know that God would preserve His church. They were told that, but it was hard to believe as they looked at the world around them. And think about our own church. What would, you know, hypothetically, what would happen if the elders and pastors were locked up and if the government closed the doors of the church and and banned Christianity? What would happen to the church? Would the church in Australia be exterminated forever? The answer is no. So we think back to Matthew 16, 18. Jesus makes this promise that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And Paul's sentiment here is not to worry about that, about the the persecution and the suffering that's happening all around them. Of course, 
we do naturally worry about those things. But Paul wants to remind Timothy here that God is sovereign, that God is in control. Look at verse 8. He says, remember this. Remember that Jesus rose from the dead. And so what he's reminding Timothy here in verse 8 is that this God who had the power to raise Jesus from the dead, this God who had the power to cause dead legs to walk and a dead lungs to breathe, he has the power to preserve his church. Even, even if I were to drop dead tomorrow, or even if Gerald were to jet off to Israel, which is what he's doing, and even if the government ordered all the churches in Melbourne to close, nothing would change. That's what Paul's telling him here. God would not be any less powerful his purposes and plans would not be thwarted in any way, and the preaching of his word would not be any less relevant. That's the point he's making here. And he says, look, look at me, verse 9, look at me. I'm in prison. I'm bound with chains, he says. I'm, I'm stuck here. I can't go anywhere. I can't do anything. But the Bible is not bound. The word of God is not chained up, stuck behind bars, Right? The scriptures are not bound. He says that here. So he encourages Timothy. He says, go and preach. Preach the gospel in the catacombs. Preach the gospel in an attic, in an upper room. Preach the gospel in prison and if you have to. Because the word of God is not bound. We need to remember that. That God doesn't need me. But he chooses to use me, and he doesn't need you, but he chooses to use you. And he makes his, 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 the message of the gospel known through ordinary means. I heard this story from Brian Chappell. You know, it's the story, uh, it's interesting, it's the story of a Christian who was in Vietnam. And uh, he was imprisoned, he was in this dark, dingy prison, just like Paul. And as time passed by, his faith began to... It, the prison life began to wear on him and his faith began to wane and he began to crumble under the weight of his circumstances. And one morning he had decided, I've had enough of this, I'm going to become an atheist. And, and so he was, he started becoming an atheist and, and then he was given this cruel and unusual punishment in prison, toilet duty. And I'll spare you the de details of his journey in the latrine but I will tell you what he found while he was cleaning. This is, this is a true story. He found a scrap of paper. And on that scrap of paper was written, all things work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purposes. And the next morning, he says to his prison guard, he says, sir, I'd like to clean the toilets again. And again, he found bits and pieces of paper of the Bible in, in a dark and cold place. And we're just reminded again that God works powerfully in unexpected places. He works in prisons. He works, um, he works in countries that are where their persecution rates are high. He works in, in broken marriages and in difficult circumstances. And the Word of God gives us strength to persist and to endure in difficult times. This is why Paul says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, because his confidence was that the scriptures are powerful, and that as he preached the scriptures, that they would produce the fruit that God wanted it to produce. God's grace strengthens us. God's word strengthens us. 
And then there's a third uh, promise here in this passage. And it's that last promise at the very end. It says that God is faithful. Even if we are faithless, God remains faithful. And too often, I think as Christians, we believe this big fat lie. And that lie is that, and we usually believe this lie when, we've, when something has gone wrong in life. And the lie is this. I am faithful and God is not. That's the lie we believe. I go to church. I give my offering. I give my time. I give my energy. I pray. I do all of these spiritual things. Look how faithful I am. Look at what a good Christian I am. And then when, when we fall in rough times, what do we say? Where is God? He's abandoned me. That's a lie that people believe. I'm a faithful Christian. God is a faithless God. But we are told the opposite here. Even when we are faithless, he is faithful for he cannot deny himself. And so we need to remember this, that, that, that we, we do not love God as we should. We do not love him as perfectly as we should. We do not obey him as perfectly as we should. But yet, at the same time, in spite of our sin, in spite of our failings, He has loved us. He has shown His grace to us, His mercy to us. He has forgiven people who don't deserve forgiveness, but are promised forgiveness. And He promises that forgiveness to us, His faithfulness to us. And how was that displayed most uh, poignantly? It was displayed through the cross. It was displayed when Jesus Christ died in our place for our sins. And so we need to remember that promise here, that he is faithful, even when we are faithless, for he cannot deny himself. Now, I want you also to notice in verse 11 that there are these, in addition to that st statement, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. There are three other statements. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. So two of those statements are for the believer. One statement is for the unbeliever. And there's that statement for the unbeliever. Look at verse 12. If we deny him, he will deny us. This is a promise to the unbeliever. This was a promise to Judas. You know, it's just so interesting to think about the life of Peter and the life of Judas and how similar they were, yet how different they were. And there was, both men denied Jesus, but there was one difference, one difference between Peter and Judas, and that difference was that in the life of Judas, there was no faith and there was no repentance. But in the life of Peter, there was true faith and true repentance. And so, we learn here that, that those who profess Jesus but betray him with a kiss will be disowned by Jesus. Now, I want to clarify something. This statement here is not directed at true Christians who are struggling. It's not directed to Christians who struggle with doubt. It's not directed to Christians who struggle with the assurance of salvation. It's not directed towards repentant Christians who are struggling. This is directed towards the person who flat out rejects Jesus Christ. 
who says, I want nothing to do with Christ. I'm not interested in him, and I'm, I'm not repentant. I'm not sorry. People who have turned their back on Christ together, altogether. This is, this is uh, talking about apostasy. And as John Stott once said, the essence of apostasy is changing sides from that of the crucified to that of the crucifier. And there's a promise here. The, the person who disowns Christ will be disowned by Christ. And it makes sense because why, why would you want to endure, why would you want to spend eternity with Christ in heaven if you don't want to spend life with him here on earth now? And so there's this, this statement, this warning that is held forth. And there's also a promise here for the believer in verse 1 and 2. It says, if we have died with him, he could be speaking of the fact that we die to ourselves. We die to our own sin. We die to our selfish desires. But I actually think it could also be referring here to the end, when we breathe our last breath, when we finish the race well, when we reach, you know, the last day of life here on this earth. Paul is talking about, not just talking here about people, you know, who are coming to faith or who have come to faith or people who are saved, but he's also concerned about people making it to the end. You know, sometimes in the church, we often focus so heavily on, we hope that, we hope and pray that souls are saved. We want people to be saved. But the New Testament also emphasizes this idea that we want people to endure. We want people to make it to the end. We just don't just want people to come to faith. We want people to persist in the faith. We want people to stay in the faith. You know, I think of all these people in my life who have persisted in the faith. Do you have someone in your life who has persisted in the faith, who has made it to the very end? Now, just think about the kind of legacy that that person had, the kind of impact that that person had in your life. I can think of my grandfather and the kind of legacy that he had in our family and the way that he, he prayed for his kids and his grandkids, even in his last hours. And I think that's what Paul's talking about here. He, he's saying that, that the calling is not just to start in the faith, it's to finish in the faith that we are called to finish in the faith, not just, you know, for our own salvation, not just so that we go to heaven. But what does Paul say here? He says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. In other words, I'm not just running the good race for me. I'm doing it for my kids and my grandkids. I'm doing it for my family. Soldier, soldiers don't just fight for their own freedom. They fight for the freedom of others. And so this is the calling to the church, that we are called not just to be Christians, we're called to endure in the faith. We're called to model that endurance for our children and for our children's children, to leave them with the legacy of faith, that they might persist in the faith, that their kids would come to know Jesus and their grandkids would come to know Jesus, and that through that, we might all come to discover the eternal life that God has for us. So, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. And if we endure, we will also reign with him. And I want to remind you, before I conclude here, that, that we don't endure in our own strength. You remember that. We endure because God gives us the strength to endure. And his spirit is powerfully working in us, 
causing us to endure. And we see that he gave Paul the strength to endure prison. He gave Peter the strength to endure martyrdom on the cross. He gave Stephen the strength to endure stoning. And so may God give you that same endurance as you face all kinds of pressures this week in life, that you may fight the good fight and that you might run the race well. So why don't we just ask God for a moment to help us to do that. Let's lift up our hearts and close our eyes and let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we, uh, we all stub- stumble, we all struggle, we all fall, we all fail. And it's difficult at times to persist in this life. It's difficult. We, we face all these kinds of pressures. And Lord, um, we need your grace to help us, to sustain us. We pray that your spirit would give us strength uh, to live the Christian life and to fight the good fight and run the race well. Lord, strengthen our faith, we pray, also through the preaching of your word. And may you take this word and may you apply it to our hearts and lives that you might be glorified forever. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we'll respond uh, with a song, Facing a Task Unfinished, that drives us to our knees and need that undiminished rebukes or slothful ease. Uh, Please stand and we'll sing together. Thank you for standing. Sing a task unfinished that drives us to our knees. Our knees.